Welcome to this episode of Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. On today's show, I have two guests, two writers, David and Sarah Trustman. Back in 2016 at the Baltimore Comic Con, Dean Haspel, a former guest, said to me, you know, you should go meet this guy, David Trustman. He's doing some really cool stuff. And it was after that that he and Dean got together and worked on the book Godslap. Well, this year at the Baltimore Comic Con, at the Memory and Magic panel, I saw David and Sarah Trustman talk about their book, The Memory Arts Fundamentals, and how they use mnemonics to enhance the power of their memory. And we all can, too. Sarah and David are two of the nicest people you could ever meet, and we talk about their life on their farm and about their book. And I have to say, their book is very well-researched. They go through the history of mnemonics. I've read it. I'm working on improving my memory. And after you hear this episode, you will want to as well. We also talk about David's work with Dean Haspel, Godslap, and we talk about the comics that he's worked on and one that he has in progress right now. Plus, after this podcast, learn how you can win two weekend passes to the New Jersey Comic Expo, November 18th and 19th in Edison, New Jersey. It's not far away. It's coming up very soon, and I'll talk about who's at the show and what panels there are. I'm going to the show. If you see me there, say hello. Okay, now on to our interview. And again, this was a lot of fun, and it's very fascinating to learn about the history of mnemonics and how it's been used, and how sometimes it didn't turn out too well for those who use them. All right then, I present to you Sarah and David Trustman, here now on Creator Talks. Sarah and David, welcome to Creator Talks. Hello, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. I wanted to ask you first about your life outside of books, writing and illustrating books. You have a farm. Yeah, we do blackberries, blueberries, raspberries, and... Uh, Japanese persimmons occasionally. How long have you been doing that? Actually, since I was eight years old, my parents decided then that um, my father really wanted to have something growing and something to make sure that the kids were you know, knew how to get their hands dirty. And so his solution was three acres of thorned blackberries ever since, you know, I was eight years old. I actually have family in North Carolina. Dad came from North Carolina. It's a town called Elkin, which is northwest of uh, Winston-Salem. And uh, my grandmother's house, she had like a one-story house and a chicken coop out back. No chickens, but she had the chicken coop still there. And uh, very rustic. Do you you have livestock? Do you have chickens? Don't you? We do. Yes. We have chickens on the farm and at our house. Just like hanging around. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, they have the coop in the backyard, and then during the day, if we're home, we let them into the backyard, and so they roam throughout the whole backyard, and and um, we can let the dogs out, and the dogs will go and quietly sit and watch them, and so. And they get along with the chickens. That's great. <laughs> They require some supervision, but they as long as we're there, they they enjoy kind of a funny relationship. Yeah, one of the dogs likes to scare the chickens, and whenever she does not get a reaction, you know, one will be out, and she'll run up to the chicken and try to scare it, I mean, just inches away from its face. And if the chicken just doesn't react, the dog looks so confused and just kind of wanders away. So it's a lot of fun, and we ha- get to see how certain chickens don't like squirrels. <laughs> we have, a squirrel. Yeah, we have one chicken that if squirrels come into the backyard, she will run after them. And in fact, once a cat got into our backyard 
and the chickens kind of surrounded the cat until until she backed back and went back into her own backyard. <laughs> That's funny. So they are far from chicken. <laughs> yeah. I guess your dogs get along great with the kids as well. Is like what are the criteria when you pick out a, a pet? Yeah, pretty much. And one of our dogs kind of found us when we were walking. So, but she ended up, you know, we she came out of the woods and we tried to find home and there was no home for her and she has absolutely she fell in love with the other dog and the kids fell in love with her and she fell in love with the kids and we were we were walking through an area it turned out was a popular dump spot for dogs get tired of their dogs and go to this remote area and just send them off and uh she was so sweet we couldn't get rid of her yeah how can someone do that I, I don't, especially this dog. I mean, she really just has the sweetest, kindest temperament. Although I do think there's part of her that's happy to to know that she's at a home that loves her. So she's appreciative. Yeah. Growing up, we had a dog like that. I was on um, the March of Dimes Walkathon when I was a tween, and this Beagle Basset mix started following us on the walkathon and went all the way through. And no one knew who he belonged to. So we adopted him. And we, we kept him from there on out. That was it. And he, he loved it. It was great. He was a great dog. Another side, just getting back to the chickens, I just want to share this. Uh, when I lived in my townhouse in old Newcastle in Delaware, when we sold the house, we did not realize when they looked at all the paperwork that it was zoned for, like, we could have had chickens there. Oh. And I did not know that because at one time they did in this old neighborhood have livestock in the backyard and chickens. And <laughs> frankly, we would have done it if we knew we could have. <laughs> it's legal most everywhere here. Under, I mean, there's certain restrictions. You can't go and have 50 chickens in your backyard, but you know, they as long as it's within a certain square footage and certain number of chickens, I think pretty much anywhere. Yeah, and they're just terribly fun. They're so friendly. We'll go out and they'll come and hop in your lap and want to hang out. Well, let me now ask you a bit about your background. Now, Sarah, you studied early childhood education, music and theater. Do you still play any instruments? I occasionally play piano. I don't know that I play enough to be able to say that I really play anymore, but we do have a, a piano and on the very off chance that I have an extra 20 minutes, I'll sit down and play a little bit here or there. Um, and and I probably sing all the time, but in the car. <laughs> not, <laughs> not as much um, in any groups anymore like I, like I used to. And your study of theater, were you in any uh, plays that you remember that you were fond of? Oh, I've been in so many plays. I, I don't know that I could go through them all, but my all-time favorite role was I got to play Caliban in The Tempest, which is traditionally played by a large man, and I am five feet tall and not a man, so it was really fun being able to kind of recreate this character that is typically thought of a certain way, and I went kind of like Gollum and got to be very weird movements and wore a leotard and blue face paint, and so I was completely blue from head to toe, and it was a lot of fun. It was set outdoors, so I was preset underneath um, underneath the stage. So I had to lay under about six an sixteen inch high roof on the on the ground um, in the dirt and wait for like forty five minutes for the show to start. But it was so much fun crawling out 
for the first time and people would gasp because they had no idea I was there. Now you're also an advocate for childhood education. So how did you get involved in that? I mean, understanding your background in early childhood education, but what drove you to be an advocate for it? Um, a combination of things. My mom is a teacher and I see the countless hours she puts into school outside of when she's at the school. I mean, sometimes she's in the school building until eight o'clock at night, but then she comes home and it's what she does until the wee hours of the morning and on the weekends. And then, you know, we have kids and, um, I, I got involved in the PTA at our daughter's elementary school. And there was just a really great need to get other parents involved. And so I, I, joined the PTA board and then became PTA president and um, through that I just really saw how especially here in North Carolina the school budget keeps getting cut and cut and cut and teachers are being paid less and less and less so um, there's definitely a need especially now for parents to um, step in and help as much as they can and support the school and let the teachers know that they're being supported, but also to be a voice for the school and um, and teachers and students and hopefully increase some funding and and teacher salaries and, and things like that. Now, the two of you have this very farm. And David, when was it that you decided to get into comic books? So at 30, actually, I, I had written for some, uh, you know, some screenplays. I had done a novel and I had, you know, uh, done the screenplay thing where I was entering these, you know, the, the big contests. And I had always placed just one place out of the representation prize. And, the, you know, I would get, if it was you needed to be top three, I got fourth. And if you needed to be top five, I got sixth. And so I just, it's like, I'm never going to see any of my work made into a movie, but I love comic books. And I tried to find a couple of artists. It didn't really work out. And so here I am, 30, and I was like, you know, if I'm going to get this done, I just need to learn how to draw. And so that was pretty much the start. And a few years later, I thought, well, all right, I'm, I think I'm about ready. I have a story I really want to tell. And I put out uh, a comic called The Rise. Do you both share a love of comics, or Sarah, is that strictly David's thing? I'll be honest. I had I never gave comics the credit that they deserve. I when I thought comics, I thought you know I love comic based movies, but I thought just like oh fun superheroes, I did not respect them. And then I met David, and I started reading his comics and I started he started giving me the comics that he had grown up on and current comics that he loved and I got I, hooked. Yeah. <laughs> and I just devoured them. And I still I feel like I'm playing catch up and he's constantly oh you haven't read this. You have to read this and um so now I absolutely love comics and so even more so I feel passionate and spreading the word that comics are awesome and there is a story for everyone and they are deep and intellectual and fun and moving and everything a good book is. 
comics are that and more. Um, so, but that was, that's one of the things I have, I guess, to thank David for was introducing them to me. So David, what was it that you read growing up that you shared that got Sarah hooked? Oh, Peter, well, Peter David, Hulk run. Spider-Man. Spider-Man, and then even I got her started on Ultimate Spider-Man and then led into, of course, Walking Dead and Invincible and then, you know, just everything that I can think of. Savage Dragon, um, every single Mark Miller, anything to do with him. Were you apprehensive about it, but or was the, the farming and the other work enough to support you so that you could do your own thing, could produce your own comic books? Well, yeah, and I mean, I really, there was a time I was living in a warehouse out by the airport. I mean, my whole, I was just like, you know, I really want to learn how to do this. I really want to tell stories the right way. I want to make them engaging. I don't want to make this a part-time gig. So it was just, for me, it was like, all right, I'm just going to make my focus learning how to do it right. Living minimalistically. <laughs> yeah, I really am suited to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to get into the book that the two of you put out, two books actually, but start with the first one, The Memory Arts Fundamentals. Now, I saw you in Baltimore. I met you there. And people are like, Chris, you're always bringing up Baltimore. Well, it's close, and I really enjoy it. And I went to your panel at the Baltimore Comic-Con, and I was so impressed I was glad I went because it was not what I expected to see at a panel talking about memory and magic. And then it led into your book, which helps to explain and helps teach you how to improve your memories so you can remember things through illustration, through images, through building memory palaces. Um, and I'm working on it. I'm still working through the book, but I am going to master this before the end of the year. I made, awesome. that, I made that commitment to myself. I, I need the help because my memory is crap. <laughs> 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 and uh, so tell me a bit about it. The book teaches mnemonics. Memory is using pictures and illustrations. And the technique is important. It works well if the, the images are, are bizarre and outrageous. It helps to remember things better that way. Please explain how this method is different from what we all do what we've been taught to do through school, which is the harder way, is through rote memory versus using these images. Why do we do things the rote way when this seems to be so much more effective? Well, we think it's easier. Throughout history, using mnemonics and using visual memory, at one point, that was the way you learned everything. And you didn't have access to books, and so you had to, if you did get your hands on a book, you would read it and you would memorize it so that you could go through it again, but in your mind once you didn't have a, a copy in your hand. So at, at once it was necessity. This is just how everyone did everything. And at various times, due and largely to the relationship with the church yeah. and mnemonics, they would come in and out of fashion. So there was some time that the church would say that this was, that this was a great thing and this was the way that you should memorize scripture, or this was the way that you should um, memorize even facts about scripture, or if you were going to do a sermon, you should put it all, make it into visual images that you can go through in your mind to remember what you want to say when you're preaching. But in other times, um, 
because they're these outrageous, crazy-sounding images, they seemed demonic to the church. And so you would have someone who would be talking about all of these crazy things, and it sounded like these incantations and spells being cast, but really they're just going through these silly pictures in their mind that is triggering cer certain things that they need to remember. And so there are times that the church actually turned around and would burn monks at the stake for knowing these memory techniques. And so due to that, um, they would then go out of fashion and they wouldn't be used. And Or you'd have one person who would have a bit of fame and would not understand the methods and then, you know, they would say something bad, and of course, all the people who like that person would repeat what they said, and oh, it's all, it's dumb, it's silly, it doesn't work. And to some extent, I don't know why we're not using mnemonics in the school systems today, and why we're not using it more, and that's part of what David and I um, are working hard to do, is to spread the word of mnemonics. A lot of books that teach about this, it's all text-based, and so it can be overwhelming when you're first getting into it. And so that was part of the reason that we decided to put it, make it into a graphic novel, into something visual, is because it is fun and inviting. And so it makes the whole process more easy and enjoyable. Um, so it's not quite as daunting. You know, another thought about why mnemonics aren't being used is that a lot of people think that they are using mnemonics every day. They think that um, coming up with acronyms and, uh, you know, just simple, goofy rhymes, because that is a type of mnemonic, they think, oh, that is the best mnemonic. Well, it's the type that they use in medical books and things like that. But the truth is that that is the lowest form of memory aid and that the memory palace is actually the highest form. And so I think, you know, one thing we talk about is how some people think that just because they have a piece that they have the whole puzzle. And something that you mentioned in your book that I found, because you did a lot of research on this. Oh, yeah. There was a monk, uh, I believe in France, early 1800s, who used this technique. And I didn't know how to pronounce his name, but I read it as finagle. Fine angle, yep. Fine, right. And and tell me a bit about that individual and how that didn't quite work out so well for him. That eventually he had some backlash over that teaching that technique. Well, he was amazing. He was the guy who decided that um, he had gone to France and that he loved uh, the country so much, and he had been studying uh, mnemonics, ancient systems, his life and it was his passion and so his goal was to pay back the country of France by providing the most amazing uh, memory techniques that would revolutionize um, you know all education and what he did was a series of demonstrations except he never did the demonstrations he would um, and it's a really interesting thing about history is he went to an orphanage and requested several orphans so that he could just teach them and put them on stage and have them do these amazing displays. And he got a lot of interest because of his displays. He had a girl memorize a thousand objects, you know, the way that Sarah had objects called out to her. 
this orphan who learned the, the systems for, I think they had her do it for two weeks, and then she did a thousand objects as they were called out, and then she called them back in random order and wrote them on a board in order. Uh, but he he picked up a lot of famous clientele. He had a school, and then one playwright just didn't like him and made fun of him. And a term in, I believe it was 1812, the same year that Feinagle decided he could no longer stay in France, uh, the word finagle appeared in France, and it was to um, to trick rich people out of their money. And so here's a guy who his greatest wish is to just give this country the the amazing gift of of memory and you know launch their educational system beyond all other countries and. Now we know his name is Finagle, and it's not a good one. Because <laughs> one person didn't like him for whatever, probably some personal reason, and and then worked to badmouth him. It looked like the uh, the playwright had a crush on an actress, and that the actress was a student of Finagle's, and you know who knows what exactly the reason was, but it was enough to to ruin the guy. And he wrote a book, The New Art of Memory, but he didn't like take all the credit. He went back and attributed this technique to, well, throughout history, to those who had used it. Yes. And that's what we, one of the things we admire about him so much, and that he's inspired so much of our system, is his love of the history of mnemonics and making sure that that doesn't get lost. Yeah, he just really took care to document everything and to provide he, in his book, he, he provides um, excerpts of different manuscripts just so other people who might not have access to them in the future could have access to them. So in that way, I mean, the guy just, how do you not admire someone who cared so much and had such foresight? And this technique goes back thousands of years, and in fact, back to the ancient Greeks. And you related a story at the panel about a Greek dinner party gone bad that gave rise to the loci method. Would you tell us what happened at that dinner party? A guy named Simonides was having dinner with a large group of people. He was called outside, and the building collapsed, crushing everyone inside. The bodies were not recognizable, and when the family members came to collect the remains of their loved ones, they had no idea who was who. But Simonides realized he could remember where everyone was sitting at the table or in the room. And so in that way, he was able to go around and identify the bodies because he knew where they were sitting. And so this led him and others to realize that our brains naturally remember things in two ways. One, as images, something visual. Two, we remember things as locations and like spatially in the world around us. And so from that realization, they started developing these memory palaces where you imagine a location in your mind and then store information there as pictures. And that's what you've done with this book. And David, you've added watercolor images to the book to help remember these. And they're, they're actually great illustrations. Did you draw those uh, from 19th century pictures? Some of them are referenced. We, at the time, for a couple of them, we actually had a couple of horses on the farm. 
books, I referenced those. It really just kind of tried to have fun making a fanciful but almost realistic land and just really trying to pay attention to encoding the images with the numbers uh, the right way. Yeah, maybe I read that into it because in reading the book, this is based on Middle Age techniques and 19th century books. So I thought maybe that had some influence on how the the path was developed. The path was developed, one of the large influencers would be yeah. Feinagel. And the big thing about how we've designed this path is that each location looks like the number that it represents. So, you know, number one is a tower. Location one is a tower that looks like the number one. Location number two is a swan that looks like a number two. Some of our locations um, we kept are, are similar to locations that Feinagle used. Some of them we did have to update because he used some, some objects that are no longer. Yeah, not too many people are uh, throwing the name Sisyphus around. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we modernized them a little bit and then had to figure out how to work the numbers into each location. So when you look at the image, you can find a number hidden inside. Yeah, it's interesting that you have ace through, like, king of the cards. That's the first 12 things you learn. And then you have this path of, like, 26 stops to start out with in book one, the first book, book A. And just kind of looking ahead, I could see how you had each picture broken into quadrants and how you can then take, remembering those cards and place those in the quadrants. And then you can eventually start to build a three-dimensional room around you with looking at the floor, how things lay out and the walls. And I'm like, wow, this, I can see how you can pack so many items in there that you can remember and recall, you know, 30 or more if you really work at this. Yes, and you can, um, in the second book, we introduce another 26 locations, so you have a full, what then is, a full room would be 50 locations. And then you have an infinite storage space because you can put those locations in any room, which sounds complicated, but um, through the illustrations, it's much more easy to understand. But so I house pi, like the digits, the number pi, in a, a room in our basement. So I have all of the locations on the different walls and the floor of our basement. But then when I do cards, I use the locations, the same locations, but placed in our kitchen. And so you can have all these different rooms that you can go to that have different things stored at the location. And you gradually build on each one. So it, it sounds like it's a lot, but if you, and I'm taking my time with this, I'm not like blowing through the whole book. I'm going back and rereading each one of those locations along the path and kind of enjoying the story. And as you recommend in the book, really get into it and imagine it and see it and smell it and feel it and kind of just really soak in everything about the image to make it very real in your mind, to make it stick. In ancient times, they would actually meditate and say, you know, they didn't have TV or even books really to read. So they could spend an hour or two hours at night going through all these locations in their mind. And so now when we fall asleep, or even when our kids fall asleep, that's what we do is we just sit there and go through the rooms and go through the locations and imagine walking through them and seeing what we have stored there. 
So instead of counting sheep, we count locations <laughs> and pie and cards and things like that. Our daughter always calls out. She's like, I'm going through my location. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you can start with kids doing this very young. Like what age would you think would be good to start with? Any Once they start reading books, really? really if long- they're going to do it on their own, yeah. you want them to be able to read books. But really, as long as they can see the pictures, it's something you can start with your child at any age. Our daughter really started at the at about the age of five. Um, when she was five, she memorized her first 60 places of pie. But really, as lo- any age that a kid can start telling you what's happening in a story. You know, you've read a kid a story so much that they start going, oh, on the next page, this is going to happen. That's about the time where you can start giving them a path and really... Like a shopping list would be one of the most fun things to do where you just practice and you tell them, you know, you go through your, your images where you would make a silly story at your tower. You'd have your bananas and the bananas are bursting out of the tower, whatever, and the kids love it because they can be ridiculous with their stories. We can never write another list in our house again. I think our children would revolt. They, we memorize, if we go to the grocery store, they want to memorize the list, and then you check things off your list by imagining them exploding in your mind. And so when we go through the grocery store, we're exploding tomatoes and chicken. And Yeah, you know, it doesn't take long to do a list either. So it, it's... I mean, it takes less time to memorize one than it does to write it down. Well, that's good to know because I have... Two small children at home. One's too young. Like he's like one year old. But I have a six year old that I read to. So he would be perfect. I should probably do this with him. He probably would enjoy it. It's because he has a vivid imagination. <laughs> Absolutely. I, our kids, I mean, that, that's a great age to get started. Our daughter just, I mean, she devoured everything. And, you know, even their friends and cousins and things like that. And, you know, more and more kids will teach me, teach me this. And how did they know how to do this? And, yeah. Because it is fun. It's all about telling these silly stories with silly pictures. So, it, and you know, learning, learning doesn't get much more fun than that. And we, you know, with our daughter, there's times that we have taught her these images or, you know, shown her these pictures before she could even understand really what she was memorizing. We started um, in book B, we introduced all the bones of the body in just a few images so we started showing her those images before she could even start to comprehend you know some of how to say certain bones and things like that and then once she had all the pictures down then we went back and said do you want to know what you just learned and then we went back and showed her you know well this was the serving platter with the icicles is the cervical spine and so now she when she sees that um the serving platter with the icicles serve icicles cervical and so she's learned the bones of the body without even realizing that that's what she was doing wow she likes to show off to her older cousins that are just now learning the bones in school and she's like i already know them (laughs) (laughs) is this something that you have to use it or lose it i mean you really have to continue to develop this skill and practice the more you do it the easier it becomes and then you really the, the coolest thing about it is that um like pie we decided we wanted to see what it would be like to memorize 500 places. And then what we do it with everything is we put it to the test. We, we memorize it, and then we try not to go through it for about a month 
and then we'll see what has stuck and then we'll go through and you refresh every so often but really it just kind of takes you get it in you practice you you, you uh, review it a couple of times and then every so often you go back through you know one night you're laying in bed and you decide you're going to fly through all your lands and look at the pictures and you can go and review pi real quickly and it takes really a couple of minutes to go through everything and uh, it really is just the more you do the easier it gets. When did you first go along this path to using mnemonics? Was that through your magic act? You had a need to find a way to memorize numbers? Anything, really, objects, whatever. Yeah, really, we were just learning about magic, and we started getting into it. And really, Sarah was the one who said, you know, we came across it in this book, and she said, this works. It's real stuff. My dad told me about this. We only did a little when I was a kid. And I said, come on, it's ridiculous. It sounds stupid. And Sarah said, nope, we're going to do it. And so we gave it a try, and then it just opened our eyes up, and we thought, why isn't this in school? This is too good. Yeah, we we found the magic trick, the ones actually that you saw in Baltimore, when the audience calls out a random list of objects, and you can do it up to any number. Usually we do about 30. And then... So it's called out in order, and then you can call back and say, well, what was number 27? And you can tell what ex exactly what object was in the, you know, called out at number 27. And, you know, they can say, well, call it back in uh, only even numbers and go backwards from 30 to 1. And, you know, you could do it that way or in any order that they ask for. And so we learned that, sim you know, simple magic trick but that uses mnemonics. And it was just so incredible. We had so much fun. It was so easy. And the whole visual aspect of it um, really got us interested in realizing that, that there was a need for this to be shown visually, not just written about. There are probably people out there saying, well, that's fine if you're doing magic or what have you, but, you know, I have my smartphone. I don't need all that. I can just keep all that information in there. But you mentioned a study in your book that talks about digital amnesia. You reminded me of it when you said use it or lose it. Really, that is the truth with your brain. Your brain is just like any other part of your body that it needs to be exercised. And if we sit there and rely on everything being in our phones or on our computer or our tablets, and we're not storing things in our mind anymore, then we are going to be losing some of these vital functions of our brain and thinking and critical thinking and processing. And when you go to write something or when you go to make any type of critical decision, it's what's inside your head that, make, that helps you reach the correct answer. You can't Google everything. At some point, you have to have some knowledge inside of yourself to help you really think critically and work through various problems. You're able to think better and make more informed decisions in any aspect of life if you know basic facts. And there's also the fact that amnesia and um, dementia, it's scary. That is something that people are afraid of. And the one thing that scientists are able to agree on, that while we don't have a cure for dementia, we don't have a cure for Alzheimer's, 
with the brain, if you use it, you have a much smaller chance of losing it. And so if you're using memory and you're practicing memory every day and you're you're doing even just fun, simple things like, well, I'm going to memorize a hundred digits of pi. Um, doing those things is helps keep your mental acuity, keeps your mind sharp. It helps you keep your memory later into life. Well, and for me, I, I often think about how people often confuse their ability to Google when the, with their ability to do something. And a lot of people say, oh, we're so smart because we're modern people and we have cell phones. But you ask those people, well, how do you make a cell phone? How do you even program the chip? How did you make a chip? How did you make the camera? And people have no clue at all. And that just shows that we really don't know as much as we think we know. And with memory work, it doesn't take much to actually learn things. And it's much more fun to be laying under a car, fixing, you know, taking out a, a piece of it and fixing it and going, oh, okay, I know all of the steps to this, the 30 different steps. I don't have to look at my phone after every uh, nut that I loosen. And this is, David is speaking from experience. He replaced the radiator in our car by watching, he watched a YouTube video, and as he was watching it, he just memorized the steps so that he then could just get under the car and go through the steps and do them without having to ask me or to pop out and watch the video again. And so it is practical. I mean, it's very practical. Uh, our kids use it all the time. If our son has to memorize something, he's taking Spanish, for example, and he needed he's memorizing basic vocabulary and off the top of my head one of his new favorites is mujer because whenever he hears that word now he pictures a woman which is what mujer means and he pictures a cow um, mooing into her hair going mujer and so that's how he's memorizing his Spanish vocabulary is through making these images well it's a great book and as I said, I'm going to stick with it and master that, go on to the second. How can people get a hold of your book? If you go to thememoryarts.com, we have several different links. Um, you can order it digitally through an awesome magician's website called Vanishing Ink. But the link, again, is on thememoryarts.com. And that book is the same as if you would get it in um, a hard copy, but just with a different order of cards. Then also a link to Amazon, or you can order it straight through our website. Um, but I think Amazon might offer free shipping. <laughs> and Sarah, are there any other books you're working on or any other projects we should know about? We're working on a children's version, actually, the Memory Arts Kids. So um, that's several shorter children's comics that we'll be teaching, um, taking kind of one concept per comic. And teaching. So the first thing is we teach the list game, and then we'll teach things like the presidents and um, pie, and then also it finishes with a fun game and so a way to play with the new knowledge that you gained. I should have started there. <laughs> <laughs> and David, uh, besides your comics, uh, most recently 
Godslap came out. Well, it, was, it came out digitally, but then it came out at the Baltimore Comic Con as a trade with uh, Dean Haspel. Interesting thing about that is it's supposed to be a parody about the alt-right and the alt-left, and hopefully at the end they find some common ground. But what happened over time, as you were doing this, working on this book with Dean, reality became stranger than fiction, basically. Yeah, it was, and we kept having conversations going, well, we were just trying to be silly with this. Um, First was we had uh, a character we named Drump, and we just decided, well, it'll be funny. We'll have him. He'll get elected. And he'll contribute to the apocalypse. And then he looked like he was actually going to get elected. And we had we had done this whole ridiculous story involving him. I think by the first Republican or right after the first Republican uh, debate. And we came up with that part of the story, and so we were sitting on it forever. And gradually, the more ridiculous we got. We had, he, he gets introduced, and he is defecating on his wife, and he's call, saying he's purifying sin. And it was funny, because every time we would put out a chapter, Dean would always laugh, and he's like, oh, we're going to lose more readers over this. <laughs> and uh, we did. We lost uh, a few readers because of the, uh, the poop. And then a couple weeks later... Out comes the dossier, the P dossier, and then we got readers back, <laughs> and, <laughs> and it just, uh, yeah, every time we think, all right, we're going to come up with something so stupid that there's just no way it's going to be overtly politically relevant, and then all of a sudden, it kind of does. It happens. So they can get this book through your website? Yes, your website, or on Amazon. It's on there as well. Are there any other comics that you're working on outside of that? I do have one. It is uh, right now we're just in the preliminary stages. Uh, an artist uh, and I are, are putting something together. And it's a horror comic that turns into something else. So it's, it's pretty exciting. I just have some fun questions for you that I ask all my guests. Uh, first question. Sarah, what's up with the bunny suit? <laughs> <laughs> there was a trunk. <laughs> um, you know, it's memorable. And they say elephants have a good memory. And, uh, you know, one thing we do actually have coming out soon is we recently did a TED Talk at TEDx Mid-Atlantic. And I think I might have been the first person in an elephant costume to give a TED Talk. But, you know, when you're talking about memory and being visually different and standing out, it's a perfect example of the concepts that we're trying to teach and it's comfortable <laughs> and my memory is bad because i said i said bunny <laughs> i'm glad you just didn't say what suit <laughs> anyway my fun questions what do you both like to do for rest and relaxation what's that <laughs> our idea of fun is literally working on our books i mean it is I can ruin a vacation by going, I'm just ready to get home and get to work. Or or we'll be on vacation going through the Smithsonian and David will say, hold on just a second, I need to memorize this. <laughs> <laughs> now, if each of you were separately stuck on a deserted island 
Is there one book that you would want to have with you? And that can be something that you've liked to read over and over or something you want to get to. Just one book? Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Well, immediately I think something by Salman Rushdie for me because <laughs> any of his books I can read over and over and, and over again and it's like I'm reading them new. I would probably say The Mysterious Island just because it seems like it has so many fun facts about how to live on an island. Very practical. You would be the one who lives and survives. <laughs> I would happily be living <laughs> until I starved. <laughs> now you're off the island. What is your beverage of choice? And I'm speaking of adult beverage, if you enjoy adult beverages. Uh, the sad thing is my beverage of choice is Dr. Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> Not very adult. No, not at all. I love it so much. It's the worst thing in the world. But <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I I don't drink much, but um, if I do, I enjoy a white wine. I'm pretty simple. <laughs> the best thing about white wine is if you spill it, it doesn't stain the carpet. Yes, and I, and I kind of spill things a lot. In fact, the first time I met David, I spilled a bright red drink all over his sofa. <laughs> so if I had been drinking white wine, that would have solved would that. Yeah, that would have been helpful. <laughs> now, I guess con season's just about wrapping up. New York's over with. Do you have cons planned for next year that you're going to attend? Or even this year, if there's any left, to, uh, besides the New Jersey Comic Expo coming up in two weeks? We have actually a magic convention that we are speaking at in January um, in Columbus called Magi Fest. Following that, we're actually, this is our first year where we kind of have some time to actually start piecing together a con schedule. Of course, Baltimore. We love Baltimore. That is well, definitely. so much fun. But uh, got any recommendations for us? Well, Heroes Con's not too far from you. It's in June, actually. We had, t- we had talked about doing, doing we, Heroes with him. That is the one that it's always right at the beginning of berry season, and it is so hard to go, well, you know, I want to miss berry season. <laughs> it's the Saturday. It's one of our our beginning Saturdays, and you see all these people you haven't seen since last season. And for berries, you work year-round for this, you know, little window of time. So when that, you know, all your work from, you know, 365 days is finally... Yeah, you're pruning all year and fertilizing and doing all this work, and now you get to see people coming to enjoy the berries. We've we've been there since '88, so we have some we have some people who've seen me since I was a little kid. <laughs> well, I can understand why you might pass on Heroes Con for that. If it ever works out, you like Baltimore, you'll like that one because they're very similar, just in terms of the feel of the show and having a lot of writer and artists there, and not. Not very uh, Hollywood or television-based at all. Mm. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you both being on the show and uh, wish you the best of luck with all your future work. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Yes, it's great. Thank you, Sarah and David Trustman, for being on the show. And now I'm going to share with you how you can win two tickets to the New Jersey Comic Expo. It is in Edison, New Jersey, November 18th and 19th at the New Jersey Convention and Expo Center. As you know, I'm on Twitter under at CreatorTalksPod. I will post this episode on Twitter. All you have to do is follow me, like the post, and retweet it. That's it. Follow, like, retweet. As simple as wash, rinse, repeat. 
do that, and you'll be entered to win two weekend passes to the New Jersey Comic Expo. Who's going to be there? Well, we have Ethan Van Skyver, Jay Lee, Arthur Sudam, Shane Hurricane Helms per wrestler. We have Meredith Finch, Larry Hama, Garth Ennis, Colleen Doran, Amy Chu, Dennis Calero, Bob Almond, a ton of guests. Well worth coming out and seeing if you're in the tri-state area. I just got the list of panels, and on Saturday, some of the panels, I just want to point out, Dynamite Presents, How Comics Are Made. There's also a spotlight on Colleen Duran, and recently announced guest Gail Simone will be talking Deadpool on Saturday. Now, how about Sunday? There's a panel on writing comics, The Dynamite Way, Storytelling on the Page, Cosplay 101, and Armor Making, and there's a panel called Hey Kids Comics, some of the top writers, cartoonists, and editors Working in modern comics for kids tell stories of telling stories for the toughest audience around. So just follow me, like the tweet, and retweet it to be entered for your chance to win two weekend passes to the New Jersey Comic Expo. Good luck. Thank you for listening to this episode of Creator Talks. The podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, and YouTube. If you like what you hear, please rate and review on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't miss a single episode each Thursday. Subscribe, it's free. A new interview will be available each week, and sometimes there'll be a second, maybe even a third interview that week. You can send me feedback and comment on social media. I can be reached at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod on Facebook and Twitter. I'm also available on Instagram, Creator Talks Pod, There I will post pictures while I'm on location, as well as my Saturday Silver Age or Older and Sunday Bronze Age Spotlight comics from my personal collection. Don't forget to visit my website, creatortalks.com. There I have listed the latest episode on the homepage, plus a playlist of all the episodes to date that you can listen to online or download. In addition, on the site, I will be posting my recommended reading picks, as well as written interviews with creators. Also on my YouTube channel are video interviews with creators on location at comic conventions and elsewhere. I know you have a lot of entertainment to choose from and a lot of podcasts to choose from as well. And I thank you for making the time to listen to this one. Your best source for comic book writers, artists, and creators. There are more interviews in the works and you never know who it might be. It is my distinct honor and privilege to speak to these creators and bring you those interviews each week. I'd like to thank my executive co-producer, who makes this possible, Mrs. Calloway. That's all for now. For Creator Talks, I'm Christopher Calloway. Until next time.